You're listening to the Lifetree Church Sermon of the Week. We pray that as you hear this word, you would be encouraged and inspired as you pursue Jesus in your everyday life. So we have been spending this entire summer looking at Jesus' encounters with what we refer to as outsiders. And we've been looking at the way that Jesus surprises people and how he engages with outsiders and how Jesus' way was just constantly unexpected. And before we dive into the message for this morning, I just want to kind of summarize something that has stuck out in many of these stories. And it's this kingdom principle that um, Jesus was not defiled through his encounters with sick people and sinners. But rather, sick people and sinners were cleansed through their encounter with Jesus. And we see this at work, like there, there was this belief that if he touched the leper or the woman with the issue of blood or, or a dead person or had contact with this Samaritan woman with this colored sexual past that he was somehow, you know, going to be defiled. But in actuality, we see the opposite happen. Or last week when Paul took us in the story with Zacchaeus, right? Like Zacchaeus is the one who ends up changed through the encounter with Jesus, not the other way around. And the reason I want us to see that, I so long for us to have that in us as a church, is because broken people in a broken world need more Jesus followers filled with the same spirit, going out and actively engaging with them. Not passively waiting, or worse yet, avoiding like the Pharisees did. Are you with me? That's, that's the burden, that, that, that we as Jesus' people, we're called to be a people who engage with those outside, not distance from those on the outside. When I talk about the outside, I'm talking about outside the kingdom, right? And so this morning, we're going to look at a text that, that coming into this series this summer, I was really excited for us to, to look at. And it's the story in John 8, verse 2 to 11. Um, it's a, it's a familiar story if you've read the story of Jesus much before. Um, and I do want to say this text, I'm just going to say it, a little disclaimer, that there are textual critics out there who, who are skeptical about where this text came from because there's some manuscripts in which you don't find it. But it's been kept in our Bible because it, it so clearly aligns with the character of Jesus that we see in many of the stories. It aligns with what he taught and what he did again and again. And it's the story of where a woman caught in adultery is brought before Jesus in the temple. And so we're just going to read the story and then we're going to start to you know, ask the questions. What do we learn from this? What do we see? Okay. So here we go. And we're going to pick up in verse 2. Um, following some debate that was going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. So everybody's gone home, and now it's the next day. It says, early in the morning, he, that being Jesus, came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? 
This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, this story is quite different than any of the other ones we looked at this summer because the ones we looked at before, people came to Jesus. They sought him out. Or in some of them, we see Jesus going directly to them and seeking them out. But in this story, this woman is is brought against her will. It's like she's been arrested by the religious police, and she is brought against her will before Jesus publicly. And they ask this question. I want you to just kind of, before we really look more at it, just like feel that scene, see it, right? This is likely a pretty tense moment. There's probably, you know, there's, there's probably some intentionality in setting this all up. It's really uh, worth noting that they mentioned that she was caught in the act of adultery. Highly unlikely, you know, or highly possible, I should say, that there was a setup involved. There was a plan at play here. There's a lot of shame going on in this moment for this woman. Brought out in public and this accusation being, you know, put against her. And yet amidst all that tension, it's so interesting that Jesus seems to just initially ignore them. It says he, he stoops down and he, he writes in the dirt. And there's this way in which Jesus seems to diffuse the situation a little bit. And, and what I want us to see as we're looking at it, the first thing I want us to see is that those who brought this woman before Jesus, they're more concerned with setting a trap than seeking the truth. It says that they asked Jesus about this to test him. But in the NIV, it says they were, they were setting a trap so that they might have something with which to accuse him. And they had little sincere concern with, with true righteousness, you see, because that's evident in the fact that they only brought one of the adulterers before Jesus. The law did say that, that there was a death penalty for this, and yet they, they catch her in the act is what they said, which means they caught someone else in the act, and yet they only bring one. It's interesting. And here's the deal, guys. Today, in our day, people are still trying to set traps for Jesus. People are still trying to set traps for the gospel and for Jesus. They may be different, different traps, different reasons, different ideas, okay? But I just had this moment this morning as we were singing that Lion of Judah song where I jotted down, I was like, the Lion of Judah cannot be caged. You'll never be able to trap Jesus. It won't succeed. Then it didn't work. Today it doesn't work. Jesus is not one you can put in a cage. He is not easily trapped. And so today, you know, we have all these ideologies 
that get used to try and trap us, right? And we're demanded agreement with ideologies. And we're given, I'll use it, I explained this a few weeks ago, we're given these false dichotomies. And that term means essentially we're given only two options and positions in which we can stand. And yet it's not true that there's only two positions to hold on an issue, right? And so, so we're given, that's, that's the idea of a dichotomy, okay? And these false dichotomies claim that there are only two positions. But we see Jesus again and again find a third position, again and again and again. And so like a common one today, right, is celebrate everything you're told to or be a fearful, judgmental bigot. Those are, those are the options, right? That's all you're handed. And yet Jesus continually finds these alternative third positions. And I find it so interesting that the response Jesus has then in this story from so far ago, it, it upset and surprised the traditional conservatives then. And it also upsets and surprises progressive liberals today. And, and, and the, the, the point I'm getting at, I guess, is that there is this amazing fact that the position Jesus holds through the ages and through the times surprises people from radically different perspectives. And it is that surprising, that transcendent surprise, you could say, that points to the goodness of his position. It points to the fact that, that this, this truth that stands through the ages, will confront various cultures, various times, various ideologies. But I do want us to really pause and take note of that reality that Jesus seems to purposefully show little interest in the conversation when they begin it. Right? It says that they come with this, I mean, this is a heated moment, right? Right? This woman has been caught in the act, and the law says we should stone her. What do you say, Jesus, in front of everybody at the temple? And it says he stooped down, and he wrote on the ground. And many have speculated over the years what he wrote, but at the end of the day, we can only speculate on what it was he was writing. And I'm not even going to try to do some of that. What I want us to just simply catch is that he seems to purposefully ignore them. And he only engages in the conversation after it says they continued to ask him. And, and wisdom, guys, knows how to diffuse hot topics and these friction situations. The Lion of Judah cannot be caged. And I find it so interesting that in this, this moment and in this trap, right, the Pharisees saw this woman simply as a means to trap Jesus. Jesus saw her as a woman created in the image of God, as a daughter of God. They saw an argument to win. Jesus saw a person to save. And the amazing thing is, is that Jesus saw in the trap that was set for him an opportunity to display the glory of God. That glory that John writes earlier in John chapter 1, verse 14, that's full of grace and truth. There's this moment where we see that idea of Jesus full of grace and truth on display in this story. Extending grace 
to the sinner without compromising the truth of God's word. Both are possible, and we see that in Jesus in this moment. So let's look at how he handled the trap. And the first thing I want us to catch is that Jesus essentially said to them, guys, everybody sins. All have sinned, right? He makes a statement in verse 7. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And Jesus is calling back to things that are written in the Psalms. You'll see in Psalm 14 and in Psalm 53, these exact same words. It says, everyone has turned away from God. All have become corrupt. And Paul quotes these words in Romans 3 when he follows it up with saying, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus' statement of, of hey, whichever of you is here, Who hasn't sinned, you pick up and cast the first stone. Is him really pointing to them, guys, you're all guilty. You're all guilty of some way that you've turned away from God. And Jesus taught this so often that we have to, when when dealing with the sin of another, we have to be acutely aware of our own sin and our own need for God's mercy. There's story after story that Jesus tells that teaches this point. It is essential for us to look at the log in our own eye before we go after the speck of dust in another's eye. It's important that we remember the the hugeness of the debt that Jesus paid for us when he forgave us when we think about the way others sin against us. It comes up again and again and again, and we are way too quick to simply categorize people, categorize the other. And I think we categorize often, like the Pharisees did, because it makes us feel better about ourselves. It it boosts our ego. Share with you a quote by a theologian, Miroslav Volf. And I've always gone back to this. I find it so helpful. He says this, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of humans. Of sinners. In other, in other words, we, we, we have ourselves in this category of like, oh, I'm a child of God, I'm loved by God, is great, amazing grace, whatever, right? And, and, and we categorize others in this camp of sinner. And this is exactly what the Pharisees are doing in this moment. And I want to point out, guys, that there is no group of people that Jesus got more angry with than the Pharisees. You see, you see Jesus being gracious and patient with people all around, but these self-righteous, spiritually proud, arrogant Pharisees who claim to know God's word were the ones he yelled at more than anybody else. He, he's kinder to Herod and even Pontius Pilate, these political leaders, than he is to the Pharisees. And the reason I was excited to to look at this text together today is because I would say my big concern often when I look across the church today is that we either end up in the camp of like judgmental Pharisee church or we end up in the camp of a liberal anything goes church. Okay? And yet we're going to see as we continue on looking at what Jesus does that there's a different way. There's a different way. So how does Jesus do this? How does Jesus 
hold the position that can surprise and upset people from radically different perspectives. And it's in that final statement where, where we see he said, he's said the thing about, you know, whoever has no sin casts the first stone. And we see the people start to trickle out. And it's just Jesus and the woman left. No one left there to condemn her, but the only one who actually was worthy to. The only one who had lived a sinless life, who actually justly could pick up a stone and cast it, is the only one left. And what does he say to her? He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you, upset the traditional conservatives who had brought her before him. Go and sin no more. You know, as it pertains to much of the maybe ideologies that fly around today is going to upset another group of people. Right? In other words, Jesus is looking at this, this sexual brokenness in this woman's life. And he's not avoiding acknowledging it as sin. That's sin when he says, go sin no more. But he also says, I don't condemn you. So now what's going on here, though? Because the, the, the word of God, the law of God said that someone like this should be stoned. You can read it in Deuteronomy 22, Leviticus 20. It says it very explicitly that someone caught in adultery should be stoned, put to death. The reason Jesus could say to her, neither do I condemn you, was because he knew he was going to take the penalty. He knew upon himself and his body he would take the penalty for her sin. That is why Jesus could go around saying words like this. Saying to the paralytic in another story, the first thing he says to this paralyzed man is, you know, your sins are forgiven, and, and they freak out. The religious, religious leaders freak out. What do you mean? How do you have authority to do that? Before this woman, Jesus says, I don't condemn you. He could do that because he knew he would take upon himself the punishment for her sin. Paul writes in Romans 5.8 that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes I think a really controversial statement in our moment, in our day and age, is, is these three words. Jesus loves sinners. Why? Because we don't want to, you know, our culture doesn't want to acknowledge that we even have sin and brokenness. And yet there is this profound reality that we see in the life of Jesus. That he's able to, he's able to see brokenness in our lives. Nonetheless, love us. Nonetheless, see our, our dignity, our worth, our value. Honor the human being that is made in the image of God despite weakness, despite failure, despite shortcoming. This is the real main point I want us to catch here today. That I, I said this last week as we were taking communion. And it was, it was coming from having meditated on this story, and it's this, Okay. Jesus is more concerned with seeing people freed from sin than punished for sin. Well, I'll say it again because I want to. It's, it's, I want it to land. 
Jesus is more concerned with seeing people freed from sin than punished for sin. He bore the punishment upon himself. So therefore, our job as his followers is not to go around condemning people. Our job as Jesus' followers is to boast in the cross. Paul Paul makes this statement. He says, "I, I boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. That's what I boast in. That's what I celebrate. I don't, I don't celebrate my own accomplishments, my own, my own righteousness, all the things I've done right in my life. I'm not bolstering my ego on those things. I live in this world as a person who is going to rejoice in the cross of Christ. May that be my central message. May that be the central message of the church. And I found myself thinking about this conversation I had with somebody who, who it's a, you know, I'm just going to go, yeah, we're going to go here into this. I was talking with a, someone about this scenario, and it's a teacher in a Christian school who, who wanted to put up a, a sticker, you know, with, with the rainbow flag, and it said, everyone is welcome in their classroom. And there was, you know, heat over this desire to do so. And, and, it's, and the obvious reason is why is because this teacher wants anybody who is, you know, wrestling with or, or, or identifying within the LGBTQ community to feel safe and feel welcome at their desk and when they have conversation. And that's a really understandable desire. And what hit me in the midst of thinking about this was, wouldn't, wouldn't it be fitting to have a cross and the phrase, everyone welcome. When, when, when did the gospel not, like, when was it not beautiful? When was it not good? When did it become not a message that was about a welcome to all people? From all walks, from all lifestyles. The cross declares to every single sinner, which is all of us and the entire world who are also people made in the image of God with great value and great worth declares, I welcome you. Come to me. Turn from your old ways and embrace my way that leads to life, that leads you into light, that leads you into wholeness. Jesus is more interested in people being freed from sin than punished for sin. There's one more scripture I want to read. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 16. We're going to read right to the end of the chapter, verse 21. And I want you to remember the story we looked at of this woman brought before Jesus, okay, who, who all the Pharisees saw was an adulterer and an argument to be one, and Jesus saw a child of God. Jesus saw a woman created in God's image. Remember that as we read this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now that's, that's a huge text that could be sermons upon sermons in itself. But I want us to see it's it, it saying that Jesus was in the world. Not counting people's sins against them, but saying to them, be reconciled to God. And we've been given the same message, the same ministry. Our job is not to be going out into the world condemning people, counting their sins against them. We have zero right to be doing that. The only one who was worthy to pick up a stone that day was Jesus. All of us would have been in the same group that needed to walk on out of the room and say, sorry, Jesus, whoops, you know. And I find it amazing that they actually did. It's awesome. Their, their consciences weren't completely seared. So in light of something Paul said to us last week about repentance, I just want to make really clear some call to repentance that we can see in this story of Jesus for us to align to. I would say this. Stop debating abstract ideas about sin and start hanging out with and loving sinners. Not saying there's not a place for reasoning and all that stuff, okay? My point is, is, is let's spend less time arguing, arguing and more time actually engaging with and loving people. Connecting. Bringing that thing that the world needs. Stop. Also, though, here's the other, the other side. Let's stop minimizing sin and start boasting in the cross. The, co- the cross does not minimize sin. The cross actually, more than anything, points to us the gravity of sin, the weight of it, the seriousness of it, and yet provides a remedy. And it is on the cross that we can say things like, the Lion of Judah will not be trapped, cannot be caged. He he upholds the justice and the holiness of God while extending mercy to a sinful, broken world. And that is the very same ministry that we have been commissioned to carry into our workplace, into our school, among our neighbors, wherever you may work out or do your grocery shopping or whatever other things you do. We carry about this beautiful message that you don't have to be ashamed of. There's no reason to be ashamed of the message that God through Jesus, shows us that he loves sinners. Sinners of which each and every one of us are. None of us are removed from the category. Are you with me? So we've been doing some discussion this summer, and I do want to just make some time for it, okay? We're going we're gonna to give just a few minutes here for you guys to break up into groups of three, four people. The smaller you keep the group, the easier it is for everybody to engage. Uh, and we're just going to look at some questions. So how did Jesus' response surprise people? 
And how might we surprise our world today in how we respond to people doing things God's word condemns, right? Big questions, big call. But the thing is, guys, if we don't actually wrestle with the how do we do this, what is this going to look like, uh, it's, just, it's just more ideas, okay? Thank you for listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. At Lifetree, we are a family all about declaring and displaying Jesus to transform lives and benefit our city. If you'd like to find out more about Lifetree, you can find us online at lifetree.ca.